um, in the past year, year and a half, uh, we've all experienced grief at levels certainly I've never experienced in my life. People uh, right before me, I was born right at the end of the Vietnam War, so certainly families experienced it then. They experienced it in my granddad's generation. Um, but it's been it's been a while since we've experienced grief like we have now. Um, and so I think probably this is a fitting topic to think through. It's just, is there a better way or is there a different way or is there another way to think about grief as it relates to the Bible? Uh, again, even if we don't have a system, it's certainly something we're all very aware of and experience on a daily basis. So let's pray and then we'll start talking through uh, what I want to suggest is just a different model, a different way to think about grief than just the typical world's way. All right, Lord, we pray that you would grant us wisdom as we seek to think through this well. Uh, we understand the significance of the days we live in and the trials that we've been through and the trouble. And we just pray that you would grant us wisdom as we respond to those things uh, individually and as we respond to those things corporately and as we seek to serve others in counseling. We love you and we thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. I didn't introduce myself. My name's Kevin. I have the privilege of serving Christ as pastor of a church in Ozark, Missouri, and as uh, the department chair of biblical counseling at Baptist Bible College and Theological Seminary in Springfield, Missouri. So we're just up the road from, I live about 20 minutes from Branson and about 20 minutes out of out of Springfield. So just a beautiful, I left the gorgeous Ozarks this morning. Uh, it was supposed to rain there, so my guess is I will come back to a different Ozarks than what I left. Uh, the leaves will probably be down. Uh, our question is, how many times do people, if you look at your introduction there, how many times do people get to know that today is their last day on earth? Right, not many. Yeah, I heard somebody say that. Very few. Uh, recently, within the last year, I had a dear, dear, dear friend uh, had just a beautiful day. She got up in the morning. She served uh, some people in the church. She made some meals, delivered those meals. Uh, after that, she went and hung out with several of her grandchildren. Uh, from there... Uh, she went and had supper with her husband and then was following her husband to church uh, in two different vehicles when uh, a big box car being driven by some thieves, being chased by the police, ran through an intersection, hit her and killed her instantly. She didn't know it was her last day, but she had a perfect last day. Loved God, loved people, loved on her family. Uh, I don't know that you could write it better. But tragic, no doubt tragic. Dear friend of mine for the last 30 years. Um, another man, though, his wife called and said, hey, they just said, they, his, his name's Jack. They said, Jack is, Jack is going to die. Uh, so you ought to come up here. So even with COVID protocols, I was able to get to the hospital. Uh, this was a Monday. My brother and 
and I, both elders and his wife and daughter, sat with him throughout the day. And he had a complication of COVID. It was long COVID. He was in his early 90s. And he sat throughout the day uh, as aware of everything as any one of us in the room. You would not even know he was sick. Uh, but his lungs had a problem and they knew that he would die soon. So we spent the entire day talking. He spent, I said very little, he talked the whole day. Uh, he was so pumped that the doctor says you're dying. He was excited about it. He talked about it. We talked about Bible verses. We talked about Christ. We talked about what heaven's going to be like. We reviewed how God had worked in his life over the course of many years. It was absolutely delightful. Probably the, one of the most rewarding six hours I've ever been through. By Thursday, he went to heaven. The doctors were right. But he knew, essentially, when he would die. Not many of us get that. Most people, as you know, the, it's either quick, they don't know it, and then bam, they're, they've died, or they're sick and they know they're dying, but by the time they get to death, They have no idea, uh, sadly, what's going on around them. But you know, somebody did know when he was going to die. Jesus knew when he was going to die. And it's fascinating how much of the gospel record deals with the final week of Jesus' life. The gospel of John, which is where we are, in chapters 13 to 17, those chapters are just one conversation. Multiple chapters, final conversation of Jesus, essentially, before he goes to the cross. It's the final lengthy conversation, for sure. This is after, and in the process of this final meal, where they partake of the supper, and he serves them and talks with them. Notice the next bullet point there before we get into the text. Death is the door to eternity. In an instant, we leave one world and into the next through that door. Now, if you're a believer, that's not an enemy. Right? You can see death as a door versus an enemy. In fact, Dr. Bob Smith was one of my dear, dear, dear friends. I love Dr. Bob immensely. He's... Uh, well, I called him the Dean of Biblical Counseling. He's counseled and trained thousands of people in this field. And Dr. Bob, the first time he ever walked me through this, he was telling me a story about a, he had recently almost died. And he was telling me the story he had fallen in his, it was uh, about, uh, it was almost near zero degrees in Indiana. He had walked out to get the mail, which is about, uh, about a quarter mile or so down the road from where he lived. His wife was inside. He didn't want to bother her, so he didn't even tell her he was going outside. And and so he's walking out there, and he doesn't have a cell phone, anything. He just barely even put on a jacket because he was going to walk out there and walk back. He was probably in his early 80s when this happened, or late 70s. And he fell on the ice and broke his hip, and there he lay. Wife doesn't have any clue where he's at. He lived out in the way out in the country. He didn't expect, he was down a private driveway, so he didn't expect anybody around at all. And he said, so Kevin, I just was laying there. And I thought, is this the way it's going to be, Lord? 
is this how I die? If I unbutton, he had a jacket on. He said, so if I unzip my jacket and open it, right, he's a medical doctor. Hypothermia will kick in quicker. And then I'll have about this long of consciousness and then I'll just close my eyes and by the time they find me, I'll be in heaven. Right, he had a whole plan. I was bawling. Right, I'm listening to my dear, precious friend describe the casualness of dying. There was no fear, no anything. He's just saying, well, this is what I was going to do and this is the way I had it planned out. And, and so he's laying there in this incredible temperature in the ice and he's totally satisfied. And I said, Doc, how can you be that satisfied? I, I don't hear anything. Again, I'm, I'm saying this through crying. And he said, oh, Kevin, death is just a taxi system. All it's going to do is take me to heaven. What's there to fear? I think that was one of the best lessons I ever had on death. Yes, I've read 1 Corinthians 15, but Doc put it in a way that was helpful. What happened, one of his neighbors uh, had slept in and missed his first class. And so he jumped in the car and was driving quickly to get to Purdue University for a class. And he drove up and found Doc and called an ambulance and he was, he lived. Everything was fine after hip surgery. But death is just a doorway. Look at the next statement. Grief is a part of suffering. We experience all suffering is death. Right? To one degree or another, suffering always reminds us that death is on its way. We live in a world of suffering. We, you could argue, one person does actually, in his book, that we don't die one death, but we die thousands of deaths. Right? We experience death over and over and over. And so at some level, grief is a regular part of life. And all people suffer. All people grieve. So the question we say is, well, how does the world grieve? And even how should the Christian grieve? Right, Suffering and grief, they go hand in hand. A lot of it out of disappointment, right? James talks about. It's the result of sin, right? It's the constant devastation. What starts in disappointment, according to James chapter 1, ultimately ends in, or moves to discontentment. Discontentment, of course, pushes us towards sin and sin ends in death. But we have divorce, we have layoffs, we have sickness, we have all of those things. In the last 24 hours, I've heard of two dear friends who have COVID this week. Uh, one of them quite old, actually both of them. And as soon as you hear that news, the first thing you think of is not just simply suffering, but you wonder about death. It's just the way that life happens. But notice what Paul says there in your notes. He says, but I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, there's a couple things to pay attention to here. And maybe circle the word sorrow. Isn't it interesting? He does not say we don't sorrow. Right? Some Christians have a bad view 
have a misconception. He does say we sorrow and we do. But he says that we should not sorrow like people without hope. I would suggest to you that when I asked the question just a second ago, how does the world grieve? The world grieves without hope. Right? They have no hope where we do, thankfully, have hope in Christ. What a difference. Why? Because we live between these two realities. Notice I have two passages there. John 16.33 says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So what does he say? He says, oh, well, you're going to have tribulation in the world. Sometimes that sounds like pandemics. And wars and all kinds of other things. I'm getting news right now in the last hour or two that our missionaries, I'm, I uh, work with a missions organization some and we are doing our best to evacuate four families out of Ethiopia because of the, the mess there. As we know, 17 missionaries are, I think, last I heard, still captured in Haiti. Have, have they been released? Does anybody know? Maybe not. If no one knows, they probably are still captured. They were on their way to evacuate, on their way to the airport, and a gang uh, is holding them off for a million dollars each ransom and promising to kill them. What is that? That's a world full of tribulation. But Revelation 21.4 says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying, There shall be no more uh, pain, for the former things have passed away. We live in between those two realities. So let me suggest that Jesus provides us with a model of how to understand and respond to grief differently than the world. In this conversation, John chapters 13 to 17, Jesus gives us a way that we can sorrow with hope. That's the difference. We can sorrow with hope. So what is that? Well, let's... Before we get there, let's ask this question. How does the world grieve? Because we need to, right? There needs to be some, something we're comparing it against. Typically, the world thinks about grieving through the five stages of grief. Sometimes that's in, called uh, DABDA, D-A-B-D-A. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She's the lady who came up with this idea back in the late 60s. She studied a particular group of people. And as she studied this particular group of people, they found out they were dying. And so she uh, watched them, talked to them, observed them, investigated, had conversations. And she came up with this sense of whenever there is bad life-changing news and or death that people go through what we know now, right? It's almost the kind of the air we breathe. People talk about, well, the stages of grief. What are those stages? Well, there's denial. I'm not going to, because of our time, I won't spend, I'm just going to mention these rather than try to explain each one. But right, so we have denial. Then often denial turns into anger, they would suggest, and anger to bargaining Bargaining to depression and then eventually you just decide, I think I'm going to make it. 
And so you accept this new life, whatever it is. Now, what is, what do these five things represent? I want to suggest they represent hopeless sorrow. They represent hopeless grieving. This is not, right? We don't have Bible verses that say these are the five stages of hope-filled grieving. What she did is she observed people, unbelievers, and said when most of them go through grief, in her perspective, they went through these five stages. Now, had she determined there was a sixth one, we'd be talking about the six stages of grief. Right? It's not truth, it's just an observation. She was the first one and the most compelling to make it, and so now everybody sees grief through her perspective, essentially, through her observations. But I want to suggest to you that this is the way you grieve without hope. Right? You don't, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't have to go through these five stages. doesn't mean you won't feel some of the certain pains that come along with these five. It doesn't mean you won't go through suffering for sure. But a believer and a non-believer do not have to respond in similar ways. If we did, then the Bible would probably tell us a little bit more about it. The Bible tells us about sorrow. It doesn't tell us about stages of grief. Right? So don't buy into this is the way. That's it's. Let me rephrase what I was going to say. It's like saying every teenager rebels. No, some do. But we hope regenerated ones don't. Right? That's what we're teaching for, training for, seeking to walk in the Spirit with. Same thing with sorrow. So what are some common responses to grief? And I'm just taking this from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11, what did those say? They say that you've been given the Old Testament as examples so that you won't respond the way many of them responded. And so what are some of the ways in the Bible we do see people respond to grief? I want to suggest four ways. One is alone. Right, and that's probably true, as you know. In Jeremiah 20, he says, you know, I'm the laughing stock. Everybody mocks at me, all mocks me all day long. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, I am all alone. In Lamentation, Jeremiah says, why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long of a time? In Psalm 42, different author now. You've probably memorized some of this or you've probably counseled out of it, but the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Right, a common response to grief is to feel alone. I've had friends, I was talking to some friends the other day, and as I was thinking through this particular talk, and, and they said, the aloneness after death is just incredible in their life. It's easy to feel alone. What else? Well, you can question God's plan, can't you? Unbelievers don't because they don't care about God, but boy, Christians, a lot of Christians do. Job chapter 3, the first that's all the verses there. In three different ways, Job questions God's plan. He says, well, why did I even live? 
I should have, the day I was born should have never been in the calendar. Then he says, in fact, the day I was born, mom should have just stuck me on the side and let me go to rest. Right? I could have, I should have died then. And then he finally says, I just wish I would die now. Right? So I think he's questioning God's plan. What about in chapter six? Listen to what he says. He says, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And that sounds like somebody questioning God's plan. That doesn't sound like God loves me. Chapter 10, Job says, Does it seem good to you that you should oppress me? Right, so Job questions God's plan. Oh, sometimes it's like we're forgotten. Psalm 13, again, you know this psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's a long time. He feels a pretty forgotten. Or life is unfair. First Kings 18 and 19. We have Elijah. He's saying, I'm the only one left. No one else serves you. Woe is me. He's the Winnie Pooh. Or the Eeyore. Which, yeah, Eeyore. The Eeyore of... First Kings. Psalm 73, what do we have? We have, oh, Asaph. He said, oh, are you good to Israel? But as for me, not so much. Right? You listen to Asaph. I, I say there's Asaph in all of us. Um, even in Psalm 88, there's a cry that is in that chapter. So those are all common responses. And reality is grief includes many areas of our life outside of simply death and dying. You grieve over a loss. And that loss can be real. My friend recently went into a... He was the... He's 20% owner of a company. And he went to a board meeting and the board fired him. said... Your lesson is don't be 20%, be 51%. (laughs) No. (laughs) We did have a fun time talking about that. But that's real loss. Right? That is, I'm not joking about that part of it. Uh, Finances. But when the stock market goes down, there's, there's people that suicides go, happen everywhere. Relationships. Right? It could be any number of relationships. When people move, when people move churches, right? When friends leave, divorce, well, that can really create real losses. So they can be real losses or they can be perceived losses. A loss of a dream or a loss of a desire, a loss of hope, a loss of plans or potential. You've not lost anything, but you assume that you're going to lose it, right? And so when we talk about grief, grief really, if you'll notice those statements, it really can include past, present, and future. Well, what complicates grieving? Let me give you a couple things I think that as biblical counselors we ought to consider that complicate grieving. One thing is the death of a dream, right? When someone dies, a lot of dreams die with them. 
And a spouse drives a, a dream of retirement together, a dream of many things. Sometimes children, divorce, you grieve a dream. Maybe it's an engagement that breaks, a job loss, a company bankruptcy. There's lots of things that you can have the death of a dream and people grieve those. That complicates the grieving process. Sometimes disappointment in God or in self. Something you did or something you blame yourself for or other people did to you or around you or whatever. That complicates grieving. Right? I mentioned to you earlier if my dear friend died of that car accident. Well, as you can imagine... It'd be easy to be disappointed in God in that instance that God allowed your wife who's on her way to church and has served people all day long and now she dies. Because what? Those people did it. So now you're disappointed in somebody else. That complicates grieving. And why forgiveness in the Bible is so important. How about fear of the unknown? Well, when you're going through grieving, there's unknowns everywhere. Because what you thought was isn't what you once had, you now don't. Even if what you thought you had, you don't have. So it's fear of the unknown, a loss of relationships. Again, when we think of dying, there's a direct relationship. But a dear friend of mine, uh, their daughter, their daughter died. And it was their only daughter. She was married and had a couple of children. Well, the husband went and married somebody else. And so not only did they lose their daughter, but essentially they've lost a son-in-law and all their grandchildren. And grieving is multiple levels. That's a rough circumstance. But also, what? If you lose, if someone dies, a lot of times you lose a lot of different relationships along with it. Right, If you hung out with couples all the time and now you're not a couple, usually you lose a lot of those friends. Right, That's complications of grieving, a loss of lifestyle. Especially if the person that dies is one that was the main finance financier of a relationship. Sometimes even a misunderstanding of theology complicates grieving. I mentioned some of these earlier, but... Right, the thoughts some people say, well, I'm a Christian, I have to smile. No, the Bible has a place for sorrow and lamenting. That's, those are major parts of the Bible. Oh, I can't be disappointed. That's simply not in the Bible. You can be disappointed, but we have to be godly in disappointment. But it doesn't certainly negate disappointment. I can't grieve. Certainly. Again, the Bible never says that. But some people kind of get that in their functional theology. In fact, what does Jesus say? He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. All right, that's a lot of just kind of setting the parameters of this larger conversation. Because I want you to understand the significance of what I believe is this conversation with Jesus. He is preparing his disciples for impending immediate grief. He is talking to them in the evening, throughout the afternoon and evening, and by that next day, he's going to be in prison. They're going to be scattered. 
By 24 hours from this conversation, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. Right? So Jesus knew that. And so when we listen and look in and think about this conversation, what we have to understand is that Jesus was quite aware what was going on. Jesus knew that he would die. John 13, 1 says now before the feast of the Passover, when what? Jesus knew that the hour had come that he should depart from this world to the father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think there's a couple of things there. One that mentions how much he loves and two, he knew it was his last hour. And so we would expect that what he has to say is important. My friend, I told you about earlier, he knew that it was his last hour. Now, when the doctor said you're going to die, he figured it was within 20 minutes, right? So he talked all day long and he didn't die. The next morning, it's like, I didn't die yesterday. Well, you'll get there. Just give it a day or two. And he did. But what he had to say was so instructive. I was a senior adult pastor before I was a before I was pastor and we started the church at sunrise. As a senior adult pastor, I've sat. I don't know. I quit counting somewhere. I've sat with lots of people. We had about 200 members of our class of senior adults. And so I've sat with many, many, many of them and walked with them through death. And and I got some of the best advice. Just great advice. Talked to one gentleman. He was dying of cancer. It was right before we planted our church. And, and he had been faithful to the Lord for years and years and years. And I said, hey, what advice do you have to a new church planter? And I've put that advice in my seminary notes and I've taught it for years. It was so quality. Just good stuff. Uh, why? Because he was getting ready to die. He knew that. So you have people bring their family around them and as much as possible, they say what's important. I think Jesus is doing that in these chapters. He knew that it was his hour. And guess what else? He knew his band of disciples. Right? What a mess. (laughs) Remember in this same context in Luke, not we're in John 13 to 17, but in Luke chapter 22... Right before this happens, what has, what are they doing? They're arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus had to think, how did I fail? I die, they didn't know that of course, I die in about 24 hours. And listen to this bunch of immature disciples I'm leaving. They're trying to get the closest seat at the table. Right, what a, what a, They're so like us, aren't they? What about the context of this conversation? Well, the context here is there's this conversation. I think John 13, 33 says, Little children, I shall be with you, what? Just a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I've said to the Jews where I'm going, you can't go. So now I say to you. Right? He's specifically saying, I am getting ready to leave. This is what you need to know. This is what you need to hear. So he's going to go out and he's going to pray in the garden. And then as you know, after a lengthy three seasons of prayer, Judas is going to show up with a bunch of people and he'll be betrayed and arrested. So essentially, time is up. 
Jesus was uniquely qualified to help his disciples prepare for their impending grief. In fact, they were already suffering. They were troubled. Jesus knew they were troubled. He was telling them, prepare for temptation. Three times he says, prepare for temptation. Peter says, we're fine. I think we'll just sleep. They didn't want to be in Jerusalem. If you go back to the context, especially if you look at all the Gospels, they keep saying, "Uh, Jesus, you know, I think we'd be better off if we didn't go to Jerusalem. No, let's go to Jerusalem. You know, they're all looking at each other like, stupid. Why why is he wanting to do this? You go ask him, right? They probably were goading each other. Talk him out of this, right? What a dumb decision. None of them wanted to be there. They were all scared. Jesus had been saying, right, if again, we're adding Gospels together, but in Luke, remember in chapter 18, he says, this is what's getting ready to happen. I'm going to walk in. This is what's going to take place and I will die. Right. So it's not like they didn't know Jesus expected some pretty rough times. So Jesus knew and they knew everybody knew. And in the interesting, Jesus didn't need Elizabeth Kuber Ross's five stages of grief. Jesus did not say, boys, let me help you out here. There's five stages of grief you're going to go through. Right? He talked about something more important. He knew our hearts. He knew our grief. In fact, what the book of Hebrews reminds us, he was one of us. And as God, he certainly understands our grief. So what does Jesus do then to help prepare the disciples for the impending grief? I'm going to suggest that he does three things. He serves them. He teaches them and he prays with them. All that's in your notes. You don't have to jot those down. And I would suggest that in those three things, he gives us a model. A model to help prepare us for grieving. A model that when we're in grieving, to help us handle grief. And a model to help us and others climb out of grief and persevere. So I think this is a perfect model. So let's let's take talk about each one of these things in order. First, let's talk about he serves them. Now, right, we could spend a long time on this whole process, but we don't have a long time, as you know. So John 13, 1 to 17, what do we have Jesus doing? He comes and he washes their feet. Jesus serves them by washing their feet. What a loving, what a loving man. It's his last hour. They don't even know it's his last hour. But my guess is if it's my last hour, I'd get a bit self-serving. You know, this is the last hour I have. Why don't you do what I want you to do? Why don't you serve me? But instead, Jesus puts on his garment takes his outer garment off, puts essentially on his towel. He girds himself, it says in verse 5, with the towel, and then he begins to wash their feet. A couple things here. What? He helped them learn to sacrificially serve other people. One of the things that will help you more 
as you move forward is what? Serve people. Look at verse 13. He says, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, what? Boys, listen. You also ought to wash one another's feet. You're getting ready to go into grieving. What do I want you doing in your grief? I want you serving. For I have given you an example. Friends, Jesus was in the midst of grief. He's getting ready to go into the garden and he's going to sweat drops of blood. To say that Jesus is not experiencing grief would be an understatement. He just experienced it perfectly. He knew the real cost. And he says, "You, I've given you an example, a pattern that you should do just as I have done to you. So when we are preparing for in the midst of and trying to climb out of and persevere through grief, I would suggest Jesus wants us to serve. He's our example. He's our pattern. Consider what often happens in grief. Right? We begin to think what? Of self. Of our loss. Of how miserable it is. And friends, if you've, if you're in the midst of grief, It'd be hard for me to imagine any one of you have not been grieving. This has been a long 18 months. Within a period of a month, just a little while ago, when Delta came through Missouri, we, I think in the United States, Missouri started, we had Delta first, I think. Right at one point, all but just one or two families in our church had COVID. And we had a handful of people, not in our church, but around our church, die. All within days of each other. I think we had four in one week. So we've all been experiencing grief. And I know that. So anything I'm saying here, please don't think I'm minimizing where you're at. I'm walking with you in it. But what happens often when we're grieving is we begin to think of self and we begin to think of our own loss. And the more we think of self and the more we think of our loss, and you could even say the more we're self-focused, the harder grieving gets. And you, and again, I'm not pointing any finger at you. I'm just, this is true. You're having real thoughts of loss because why? You've had real disappointment. You have real loss. And when we have real loss, it's easy to get lost in what we have, in fact, gone through. But what does Jesus say to these guys? As you all go through this, understand you need to serve. For the grieving individual, grief becomes lighter When we recognize the pattern left by Jesus for daily living. The spiritually mature person keeps serving even in grief. Now we know that 1 Thessalonians 5 says that there are times when you're weak and somebody needs to uphold you. We're not denying that. But as soon as we get some wind under our sails... We have to understand that we need to think broader and think more as Jesus 
in terms of his example. Jesus is getting ready for the cross, but in the process of getting ready for the cross, he's serving people. In life and in grief, we do well not to live and stay in grief alone, but instead to serve others through it. Again, I say this one more time. Grief is real. It can be very significant. At times, totally unexpected. And we don't, we don't want to minimize that, but at the same time, well, let me say that different. We don't want to minimize that. And since we don't, we do not want to neglect our concern for others and suggest, oh, you just need to serve somebody. I'm not saying it crassly like that. But I am saying you can't miss serving for grieving. In your grief, and I think that's where it helps us if we talk about this before grief. But in your grieving, we still need to serve. Right? The, if we respond to grieving in service, it honors the Lord. You say, why does it honor the Lord? Because we're doing exactly what Jesus left us the pattern to do. It honors the loss. We lost our first daughter um, when she was very young. And one of the things I talked to my wife about in the middle of our grief was that to respond wrong, to respond unwisely, to respond in a way that doesn't honor the Lord to the loss of our daughter does not honor her loss. Because we've allowed something that's happened in God's providential plan to hurt our relationship with the Lord. And I would believe that babies at that age go to heaven. And if our daughter's in heaven, what a sad state for our daughter to be enjoying Jesus in heaven and mom and dad at, on earth throwing a fit. The infant's doing better than the parent's. So I think it honors the loss when we serve others. I think it ministers grace to those around us. In the middle of our grief, we do not have to be the only one receiving grace. We can minister it to others. My dear friend, the man I told, the lady who died, her husband has responded in, in his grief with nothing less than what I would expect, to be honest with you. He has served people and served people. I've watched him go to funerals of others who have died to serve their families and dismiss himself to go in another room and pull it together and come back and keep serving. And I think, ah, the, the God's grace is what does that. But what's he doing? He's making his loss less because he's putting the need of others first. Which is Philippians 2, isn't it? A dear sister in Christ, when she first came to me, her children were, I think, probably two and four. In the process of counseling her mom, they turned three and five. And her husband left her. I remember where I was at and sitting both those kids on my knees at three and five and trying to explain to them what their daddy had done and what he was choosing to do. That sweet lady was my counselor 
not with her words, but with her actions. She taught those kids, well, since we have been sinned against and this is a real loss, that means God's given us an opportunity to serve other people. And she made date nights. She babysat kids so parents could go out to shop and do all the stuff they needed to do. And she taught those two kids how to love people in the midst of grief. And what did it do? It made all of their loss better. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus is literally getting ready to give his life for the sins of the whole world. And he's serving people. So we don't want to miss that. When we say, how does a Christian suffer different than the world? I think we must say, part of that answer is through service. We serve people. We serve the Lord. As you know, it's very easy for people to say, well, I'm going to quit serving. I can't be around people right now. I'm going to quit going to church. And before long, they're by themselves and they're only focused on self and it just hurts them. So we serve people. Here's the second thing. Jesus teaches them. Jesus teaches them. Oh, boy, there's some great lessons here. Jesus understood their grief, their disappointment, their sorrow, their anger, their trauma. Jesus understood it, and he had never even had a class on PTSD. It was going to be almost 2,000 years later before Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote her little book. But yet he understood everything they needed to know. He's been predicting this was going to happen for chapters. He knew they were going to be in deep, deep grief. Why? Because, friends, what does the text say? They're looking for a kingdom. They expected to waltz into Jerusalem and they didn't know how it was going to happen. But they thought Jesus was getting ready to conquer Rome. Jesus was going to sit on the throne in Jerusalem and they were going to sit around him. That's why they're still arguing with each other. Because they want to get the closest seats. They wanted to get rid of Rome. They wanted to get rid of the rules. They wanted to get rid of the reign of Rome over them. Jesus knew that their world was getting ready to be rocked. When they thought the Messiah's victory looked one way, in God's plan, the Messiah's victory looked totally different. Jesus knew what was coming. And so what does he do? He teaches them three specific lessons. I'm going to suggest to you if we learn those lessons, we're going to be wise and we're going to be able to handle grief better. What does he teach them? First, he teaches them about love. Love helps keep you anchored in the midst of grief. What does he say about love? Well, in John 15, verses 9 through 11, he says, As the Father loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love, these things I have spoken to you that my joy... Uh Uh-oh. 
What does he know? They are getting ready to enter into incredible sorrow. And what's he telling them? This is how you don't sorrow. This is how you have joy. Right? If you understand the context, this thing pings with incredible essence. I have spoken this to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. What? I'll add it one more phrase. Even in suffering. Even in sorrow. So what's he talking about? He says, abide in my love. In your notes, I have it. I love this statement. That means to me, love God supremely. Notice the second bullet point there. It says, love your neighbor sincerely. Let's keep reading. Verse 12, he says, oh, and boys, guess what? This is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. Because greater love is no one than this than lay down his life for his friends. They didn't know what was getting ready to happen. He says, you love each other like I've loved you. And guess what? I am getting ready to give you the greatest example of love ever. And that is I'm going to lay down my life for my friends. Then what's he say? You are my friends. If... You do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. So love your neighbor. So he goes from vertical, love God supremely, to what? Love your neighbor, horizontal. Love your neighbor sincerely. Listen to what he says in John 13. He says... Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. What does that mean? I'm going to suggest to you that love is the anchor for your soul. When the winds and waves and the turmoil and the upheaval of life happens, love of God supremely and love of neighbor sincerely anchors your soul. What are some implications from these from this specific lesson? Well, one of them is when we love God, we're going to obey. Him. So we obey him. And what does obedience do? It helps us keep joy. Even in the middle of grief, Faithfully put one foot in front of the other. Like my friend I told you about. Church attendance. The disciplines of godliness. Encouraging others. Being anchored in God's love. Even when it doesn't feel normal. Even when it doesn't feel good, we stay obedient. Why? Because it helps us handle grief. In fact, when we love God and others, we will serve regularly and faithfully. Notice it's the last line on page three. Look at it very carefully. Maybe put a circle or star beside it. Love of God produces what? Obedience. Love of neighbor produces service. Even in the midst of suffering. You're going to have joy. 
Here's lesson two. We're going to go over just a couple minutes because we started so late. So I'll just give you a heads up now. Lesson two, understand the reality of God's presence. Ah, so he wanted us to understand love. And now what's he do? He says, oh, there's something else. This is so good. Chapter 14, verses 25 to 28. He says, oh, guess what, guys? These things, <clears throat> pardon me, I've spoken to you while being present with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. What kind of peace? It's peace. In another passage, we'd say that passes all understanding. It's peace in the middle of sorrow. Not as the world gives to you, I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Oh, that, did you hear that? I'll do it again. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Friends, that's grief. Don't let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. What's he talking about? The Spirit is coming. Here's the lesson. The Holy Spirit comes after Jesus. Jesus doesn't want their hearts to be troubled or to be overcome or to be fearful. So what does he do? He sends the Spirit. What the helper comes to comfort in chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. It says, but because I've said these things to you, what sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. The Spirit is coming. Jesus understands that their hearts are filled with sorrow. They don't know the significance yet of the sorrow they're going to feel. And they certainly don't know the significance of the presence of the Holy Spirit yet. Look at John fourteen eighteen. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Friends, we're never alone. Even though we may feel alone. Consider the way grief often strikes us. We feel alone. Do you feel the quiet? Remember a dear lady, years ago she asked us to take care of her when she got old. And when we were 25, we thought that was a good idea. So then she called in the promise. So for years we had to take care of her. My wife and I did. She didn't have any children. Sweet, 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 godly lady. In her 90s when she eventually died. But she said, honey, will you, will you promise me that you'll keep me at home? I said, I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Well, she ended up with cancer and, and God's kindness. 
basically I moved in with her. We had a lot of little kids at home. Kelly couldn't do it. And so she would relieve me some, but I basically, for the last little bit, I stayed with her. And we gave her oxygen in order to, in order for her just to feel a little better. And I remember the night she died. It was about 2.30 or so in the morning. And I was sitting beside her. I'd been singing a couple of songs to her about heaven and had read a passage or two. I could tell it was getting close and just had a fresh cup of coffee. Um, and I noticed I had just finished the song on heaven and she died. Big cup of coffee. I was sitting right by her bed, maybe even on the edge of it. First thing I did, I said, oh, I hope you don't mind. I think I called her sweetheart, but I said, I hope you don't mind, sweetheart, but I'm going to finish my coffee before I do anything else. <laughs> it's the middle of the night. She didn't mind. Um, but I flipped off the oxygen. And boy, it gets quiet. And my point is, and again, I've sat with so many folks, but it can feel so quiet and alone. And grief makes it harder. There's no question. But God knew that. So that in the middle of our aloneness, God says what? You will never be alone. Even when you feel it, you'll never be alone. The Spirit prays for us. The Spirit is with us. The Spirit empowers us. The Spirit ministers to us. The Spirit helps us believe. We don't grieve by ourselves. No, the Spirit is with us even in our grieving. What does the Bible say? I love what the Bible says. That God says, I am with you always. Jesus in the Great Commission says, And lo, I am with you always. The Holy Spirit. He's our comforter and is with us always. God knows how alone grief feels. He knows how in our sorrow we can feel all by ourselves. But he says to that what? I am with you. Do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit provides us peace. Verse 27 of chapter 14. Right? The peace he provides. It's his presence. He convinces our heart of truth. It's peace that we can count on. It's peace deep in the soul that all is okay. It's peace that says they may be gone, but they're more alive than ever. What does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Holy Spirit says we can be confident of this very thing that he which begun a good work will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit says the second Adam defeated death. And so death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? The Holy Spirit says, no, that's gone. The Holy Spirit says when we take our last breath, we walk through a beautiful door into the presence of the Lord and that death is no more than a transportation system to the believer. He gives us peace. He provides us confidence. Confidence in those things we just talked about. 
14.29 says, Now I've told you before it comes that when it comes, you may what? Believe. Confidence that what God said is true. Confidence that the weight of truth rests on the shoulders of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't rest on our shoulders. The Holy Spirit carries the weight of truth. You don't have to worry one second because God has it. The Spirit tilts the scale toward confidence in Christ. There's lots of things I wonder about and there's lots of things I'm concerned about, but not where I'm going when I die. The Spirit helps us. It encourages us to pray. In chapter 16, verse 24, we have joy as we engage in prayer with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit encourages us to pray. He's here. He's present that your joy may be full. Here's the third lesson. Better get through it quickly. We need to understand the importance of eternity in God's plan. Ah, you've been wondering, when is he going to get to 14? What did Jesus say? Oh, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, you believe also in me and my Father's house. Are many dwelling places or mansions, whichever text you have. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas said, Lord, how do we know where you're going and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. He doesn't want our heart to be troubled. He alleviated all those concerns. Thomas is lost. Thomas is saying, help us. How are we going to know the way? And Jesus says, it's through me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus didn't leave them hanging. Jesus gave a clear and unequivocal answer to eternity. Jesus makes it crystal clear the door to eternity and he provides them certainty. He comforts them by saying, you will see me because I live, you will live also. 2 Corinthians 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, I just quoted a minute ago. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The Spirit essentially says to them, take this to heart, my friends. Jesus does. This is bigger and better than I hope it happens. So we sorrow not as those without hope. Jesus recognizes the deep realities of grief and suffering and he comforts them with his plan and hope of future joy. The world will have joy, John 16, 19 through 22, but Jesus says, your joy comes in the morning. So what do we need to do? We need to point people to the certainty of eternity because Jesus is the way. We remember in Jesus Christ, death is defeated. 
Because Jesus lives, we shall live also. Here's the last thing. I've got to wrap up with this. They're going to hate me. John 17, what does Jesus fin with? Remember I said he teaches them to serve by example. He teaches them in a couple of chapters. 14, 15, and 16. In chapter 17, he prays for them. Jesus takes time to talk to the Father regarding his plan, his disciples, and in this text, even us. This conversation reaches down through history all the way to every one of us. Jesus prays that God would grant us unity. Together we're stronger. Together our light is brighter. Together though is only possible by a work of the Spirit. And if you've been on Twitter, you know that it's only going to take the work of the Spirit to do that. Jesus prays that God would grant us holiness and sanctification by truth. He identifies what ultimately gets us from where we are to where he wants us. That is the word of truth. What are some observations? We can rejoice together with our counselees because Jesus loves us and he prayed for us. Listen to verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. Who is that? That's the people sitting in front of him. The disciples. Catch this. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Friends, that's us. We know the Holy Spirit prays for us because Jesus said he did. But this is Jesus praying for you. What a wonderful testimony. Seek to live in truth by the power of the Spirit and His Word. This is important as we desire to honor God even in our grief. We depend on the Word and we trust in the Word. We need to be sensitive and pray for each other as we go through grieving. So what are some implications? I'm just going to read through these quickly. Grief is complex. Grief is experienced in the flesh. It does stun and anger and weaken and depress and it often hurts. From that standpoint, Elizabeth Kuber Ross has something right. But Jesus knew all of this and he realized what a shock his disciples were getting ready to go through. What they were going to experience. So Jesus was completely aware of their circumstance, their impending trials, their temptations. And he even knew their lack of faithfulness. So he served and taught and prayed. He left his disciples with final words and instructions as they entered into this incredible moment of grief. His goals were clear as they related to their perseverance, joy, comfort and stability. Over and over he said, don't be troubled, but have joy. God gave them instructions for the heart as much as for their actions. Right? It's root and fruit as we know as counselors. So how did Jesus prepare them? Well, as I've already mentioned, he commanded them to seek to love and serve. He reminded them of the three very important lessons related to love, the presence of God and the work of the Spirit and God's eternal plan. And he prayed for them in light of everything that he knew, their relationship with God and each other and for living in light of God's purpose for life. So what can we do as counselors for those in our care who are grieving as ambassadors of Christ. Well, I think Jesus is our example. What can we do? We can serve. 
serve them in their hurting. We can remember the important lessons Jesus gave and seek to live consistent with them. To love eternity in the presence of the Spirit. And then we can pray. Pray often. Pray diligently for them and with them. We can serve. We can pray. We can remember what the Lord has done for us. Again, I asked this at the beginning. I'll just say it one more time. What does John give us? John gives us a model to help us prepare for suffering and grieving. To help us when we're in the middle of it. And to help us climb out of it and persevere through it. And I want to suggest John 13 to 17 is a great model for us. So that what? Our joy may be full. And that our hearts won't be troubled. And in the middle of a pandemic. We can say that God's already taken care of us. And we can serve well and pray often. Lord, may that be true in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.